Welcome to the Yale University Press podcast. I'm Jessica Hollihan, and today I have the pleasure of talking to Diana Tweet, the CATS Curator of Modern and Contemporary Art at the Colby College Museum of Art. Diana is the curator of the exhibition currently on view at the Colby College Museum of Art, titled Bob Thompson, This House is Mine. Diana is also the editor of the accompanying exhibition catalog, also titled Bob Thompson, This House is Mine. It's a beautifully produced book that features writings by more than a dozen contributors providing a really multifaceted reconsideration of the life and work of 20th century American painter Bob Thompson. The exhibition will remain up at the Colby College Museum of Art until January 9th, 2022, at which point it travels, first to the Smart Museum of Art at the University of Chicago, then to the High Museum of Art in Atlanta, Georgia, and finally to the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles. Diana, thank you very much for talking to us about Bob Thompson. Thank you so much for having me, Jessica. Let's start with just a, a brief description of Bob Thompson's early biography, where and when he was born, um, uh, and how he initially found his way to making art. Sure. Um, to begin, he was born in uh, Louisville, Kentucky in 1937, and was really the baby in a family, in the family. Uh, his two sisters were over a decade older than him. And uh, his parents uh, relocated when he was a few years old from Louisville to Elizabethtown, Kentucky, where his mother, among other things, worked as a school teacher. His father uh, operated a dry cleaning business, and it was the uh, first Black-owned dry cleaning plant in the state. And by all accounts, a very active, happy, social childhood until at the age of 13, uh, when Bob Thompson lost his father. His father was in an automobile accident. And uh, that came as, as quite a, a shock to the family. Um, he began to experience a lot of emotional and sort of physiological uh, sort of trauma from the loss. Um, so the beginnings of some health issues that would remain with him. And uh, it was determined that he would go and live with his sister and her husband back in Louisville. So he was able to find in his brother-in-law kind of an alternative father figure. Um, and it was also, I think, nice to be back in, um, in that familiar environment. And, uh, you know, it's an, it's an interesting meandering biography because he, from there, will go to Boston for a time and uh, live with his other sister and enroll in a pre-med course at Boston University. So um, one can imagine that that's something that he did in response to maybe the choices that his sisters had made. Both of them entered the medical profession. Um, 
it could certainly have felt like as the young sort of now man of the family, a responsible uh, path forward. And, you know, it, I think is something that academically he struggles with. So he will return to Louisville and enroll at the Height Art Institute there. Um, and that seems to be a much better, a much better fit um, for him in many respects. Do we know whether he made art as a as a younger, you know, before his experience in medical school and subsequent return to Kentucky? Yeah, he I think um, I mean, I think many of us feel like we were very artistic um, when we were young. But um, there's one story he relates about the kind of restlessness of his artistic impulses and his frustrating his mother by pulling down some of the, even the shades in the house to use them as uh, painting surfaces. So um, certainly active artistically and also, you know, something that for so many, you know, is a point of access to art. He's, he's looking at reproductions and kind of making copies of things, even, even as a young person. And where does he go from there? So he has a really, um, you know, a very rich uh, training at the University of Louisville. I mean, there is a sort of incredible um, art collection there. There are um, in the faculty scholars of Italian Renaissance art. Dario Covey is um, one. one. Uh, Mary Spencer Ney is another faculty member who's a renowned as a painter printmaker. Um, Ulfert Wilke is a German born painter who was associated with the New York School um, of Abstract Expressionism and, you know, is certainly introducing uh, German Expressionism into his instruction. He's taking courses at the Art Center Association with other uh, landscape painters like Eugene Leakey. So a really kind of, um, you know, broad academic introduction to studio practice. Um, and, you know, it's not clear entirely um, somewhere in his second year of uh, being enrolled there, he, he does leave. So he doesn't complete the study at the University of Louisville. Um, and it's really in 1958 in the summer. So he, through his connections at the University of Louisville, um, he sort of has access to, um, you know, a, a scholarship to study in Provincetown, Massachusetts. And so, you know, that becomes in summers a sort of alternative uh, place for many um, uh, art schools. So individuals like Hans Hoffman have famously been uh, running their summer schools in Provincetown at that point for, um, you know, for decades. And so Thompson travels there in the summer of 1958 and um, not only, you know, takes classes at some of the sort of small art uh, studios there, but really finds, I think, some of the, you know, the 
cohort of artists through places like the Sun Gallery in Provincetown with you know the cohort with whom he will associate um, many other artists who are trying to find uh, new modes of figurative painting. So um, folks like uh, Lester Johnson, Alex Katz, um, Jay Milder, Emilio Cruz, Red Grooms. And these are people who are who are sort of finding one another in in response in some ways to the the overwhelming popularity of abstract expressionism that has sort of dominated American art to that point and forging a new path in figurative art. Absolutely. And, um, you know, and I think by the same token, um, internalizing and of course learning um, so much from the ways that uh, abstraction has played out over the course of the you know first into the second generation of abstract expressionism. So um, you certainly see that while uh, folks like Thompson, you know, are interested in representation, the work that he makes in in Provincetown, and there's not um, there's not really much of that in the catalog or in the exhibition. Um, but he does experiment with something closer to kind of pure abstraction that's really being, um, you know, it's really using color uh, to sort of engineer composition in a much less representational way. So he kind of explosive color and um, more immediate gesture. Um, he, he tries his hand at that and some of the sort of symbolic uh, language of, uh, of abstraction. So there is work that feels like he, he, um, he tried a few different things out maybe before, uh, sort of resolving to, to kind of commit to representation. And does he go to New York city from Provincetown or is there a step in between there? Well, he goes back to Louisville. So, back to Louisville. Um, yeah. And then, um, at some point in 1959 has made his way to New York City. So he, he continues with his classes a little bit more and then, um, and then relocates effectively to New York City and um, is for periods of time staying with fellow artists in, um, in some downtown studio spaces that they share. One of the other things that the book makes wonderfully clear is uh, the importance of music and musicians in his life at this at this point that he really in addition to finding an artistic community you know a visually artistic community um he becomes close with a number of musicians and the the jazz scene in new york is very much central to to his life there too absolutely and um you know he and other um other folks who he's friendly with um like leroy jones um, are living downtown in close proximity to a number of these clubs. And um, Thompson is not only going there and listening, but he's, you know, he's sketching as he listens. And so he's kind of dashing off um, some, uh, some drawings of musicians while they're on stage and, you know, befriending, um, befriending them during, after, 
um, some of these shows, uh, his studio becomes kind of another gathering place for so many of these musicians. And these are relationships that endure. So, you know, again, they're individuals like uh, Jackie McLean, who is a jazz musician, uh, you know, they will continue to meet up in Europe, where, um, you know, whenever these musicians are performing in Europe and, and Thompson is living there between 1961 and 1963. Um, a number of them meet up again there. Of course, jazz's popularity in Europe at that time, um, you know, being, uh, being quite extraordinary. What opportunities does Thompson have to show his art in New York? Yeah, he um, he is through his connection with Red Grooms, um, who um, who is uh, the founder of a, a kind of alternative art collective called the Delancey Street Museum. Um, so uh, Grooms kind of runs the artistic program for that space, and Thompson has his what at that point is his first solo New York show. He had a, a solo exhibition in Louisville in 1959, but this becomes kind of his first um, solo New York show in 1960. And so this is a this is a, an important space for really kind of pushing the limits of um, artistic production. It's a site where grooms and others really um, are innovating some of these kind of multimedia theatrical events called happenings. Um, and uh, it's also a space where, you know, what we might call more traditional um, art like Thompson's is being shown. So that's sort of where he first gets a foothold. Um, similarly, in a two-person show at the Zabriskie Gallery, um, that happens early on. And, you know, it's really only as he's gaining, I think, some... Um, some name recognition that he leaves for Europe, which is an interesting, um, an interesting choice um, to make at a moment when you are trying to really build your reputation in a place like New York. Do we know anything about how he made that decision or why? I mean, I think there's a lot of um, desire on his part really to kind of make the pilgrimage to, um, to see, um, at that point, artwork that he finds to be, you know, particularly formative in his, in his thinking. And so some of the, um, the great, uh, work in collections in, uh, the UK, certainly in France. Um, and, you know, ultimately as various funds continue to come in, in the way of awards. So he sails over, he and his wife, Carol, um, and then uh, is able to sort of extend the trip. So they sail to London um, and from there go to Paris um, and live there for a time. And then with additional uh, grant support are able to go to Spain and to find a, a place to live and work um, on the island of Ibiza. And so that becomes home for another year. And so it's kind of an indefinitely um, extendable trip, fortunately. And he's able to 
not um, not make it to all the places he would like to visit. But, you know, I think it's interesting to see the paintings that he produces and and note, um, you know, where he would have been able to see things in London. So, for example, um, one of the paintings he makes after a work by the Italian artist Titian is in uh, in a collection uh, in London. And so, you know, there's there's an ability to sort of reconstruct some of those encounters that he would have had um, with work that, you know, was not leaving any of those collections at any point. And then tragically, he, he doesn't, in fact, make it back to the United States from Europe. He he gets sick there. Is that right? Yes. So that's on his second um, his second trip. So oh, I see. Um, in late, uh, you know, in the fall of eighteen of nineteen sixty three, he and Carol return from Spain um, to the to New York, uh, and he finds another studio space, live work studio space, and uh, that's a point at which he was able to bring back a significant amount of work. Um, he had really, you know, I think as the catalog and the exhibition demonstrate, he had really kind of you know, gone deep in terms of some of his uh, analytical thinking about um, the artists who, um, you know, whose work he could see in some depth there. So artists like Francisco de Goya uh, became, uh, you know, quite important to him during his time in Spain. And so he returns and, um, you know, really enjoys uh, great commercial success with kind of a run of shows at some of the major galleries in New York, but also in places like Chicago and Detroit. So really beginning to establish him more nationally um, and give him uh, great visibility and a lot more critical attention. And, um, you know, again, it's a curious, it's a curious decision, but one can imagine that the pull of Italy is still there um, for someone like him. And so in uh, late in 1965, he and his wife depart. And this time they, they sort of settle in Rome. And it's in May of 1966 that, you know, really a, a kind of long standing series of you know, health problems exacerbated, um, in his case, as in so many cases, by um, you know the substance abuse that he um, of his of his you know that he had sort of um, succumbed to for for many years. Um, it takes a toll, and he is not sent to the hospital um, for emergency surgery and has his gallbladder and appendix uh, removed. And then there are a series of, uh, you know, sort of additional complications, it sounds, from the accounts of those who were around him at that point, um, like his lifestyle <laughs> did not adjust in any way. So he continued to live uh, immoderately. And Carol in uh, May departs for Greece. So it sounds like the intention was to go from Italy to Greece and she's, she's house hunting um, when uh, Thompson dies and her letters to his gallerist 
describe the, the cause of death as a pulmonary edema, so something like a lung hemorrhage, um, and his having died in his sleep. And so um, it really is both unexpected and, um, you know, I think to those who knew the, the pace at which he lived and with which he worked, um, something that wasn't altogether surprising. Well, he was in his late 20s at that point. Right. He was 28. So he was a few uh, weeks shy of his 29th birthday. And I mean, it's, you know, incredibly tragic um, and also somewhat breathtaking the amount and the quality of work that he was able to produce in his unfortunately short life. So let, can we shift a little bit and talk about the work itself? I, you know, this is a, a conversation, obviously, without a slideshow, but can you convey a little bit of um, of Thompson's mature, more figurative work after his his experiments with abstraction, what, what, uh, what it looks like and what he's doing um, with, you know, what he, what he depicts on a canvas. Sure. I think, um, you know, that is of course what, what hooked me. It was the work initially. Mm -hmm. And um, we at the museum here had at that point four, um, four works by Thompson in the collection. We've added an additional one, but um, you know, I think it was, he struck me as someone and and this bears out certainly in the the show someone who is working um voraciously and working at any scale so almost someone who is really testing um the ways that his uh his compositional elasticity will allow him to work on surfaces as tiny as you know a matchbook or the um, the rail of a chair, the front of a drawer, um, as as it you know as at, on a six by twelve uh, foot painting, and so he's someone who you immediately think about for his use of color, and so he is using um, color and really it's it's gravity, it's sort of gravitational energy to, um, to drive. I think these extraordinary compositions, this is flat color. He's eliminated all modeling, it's shallow space. Um, but the energy in his lines and the ways that he is sort of eliding and omitting, um, elements in what feel like these very sort of reduced tight, distilled compositions is just so uh, bewitching. I mean, I think there's so much mystery in the work and that was one of the things that I found so, um, so intriguing and certainly something I'm seeing in people's responses to the exhibition. You know, this is, had he lived for many decades, this would be the very earliest work he produced. And yet I think it's striking how quickly he finds his voice. He, he sort of comes out of the gate with, with confidence and bravado. And um, he doesn't cower even, you know, as he is sort of 
taking on so many, so much art historical baggage <laughs> in terms of what he's um, looking at and thinking about. Yeah, tell us a little bit about that baggage. Well, I think um, he makes no, you know, he makes, um, he takes no pains to hide his, um, his sort of infatuation with, um, with European art. Um, and, you know, there are, I think in that, of course, you know, that is, that is like the, the ultimate modernist gesture, right? Um, you know, as, as Romer Bearden said, you know, art is a continuation. And so there's art, all art is about um, other art. And I think in his case, and, and one thing that, um, you know, he's in the company of so many other individuals, particularly at um, the middle of the 20th century, who are doing this within the context of a kind of renewed commitment to figuration. So it may not be fashionable, but um, it's not it's not out of the ordinary. Um, other individuals like Larry Rivers, for example. Um, are, are similarly mining some of these um, same European sources. But I think his sense of wonderment is really um, profound. And, and, you know, I guess the way that I see it is Thompson recognizes the narrowness of these foundational art historical structures um, and so he, he kind of approaches them with a combination of reverence and irreverence. And so, you know, he's thinking about artists like, as I mentioned, Titian, uh, Tintoretto, um, Velasquez, Degas, uh, Manet, all of whom, many of whom are looking, you know, he's looking through them to the, the art that they are citing. Um, but he's really, I think, de trying to determine what stories they're not holding and, you know, how much these conventions um, have really shaped a kind of pictorial realism for us. The things that we take for granted art historically as kind of real within the space of painting so I see it as a kind of, you know, earnest but playful poking at and pulling away the veil of, of you know, in particular, the way that allegory has operated art historically to really see like what's under there, what's holding this together. And for me, you know, he produces something altogether new but what I so appreciate and I think what um, what others might find in the work is that he also so expertly kind of helps us to see anew some of the paintings that he is looking at. And so, you know, in his refiguration, in his sort of revaluing some of the, the elements and the, the ways that you know, these paintings operate, I think he just, he helps us to see things that we've, um, we've become almost uh, desensitized to maybe aesthetically. And, and so I, I appreciate him for that also. One of the things that seems um, 
really captivating about his work is the you know sort of putting together a few of the things that you've that you've said um, is the way his uh, really wild use of color and these sort of um, jarring just juxtapositions of of colors um, interacts with the not only his images but the images of um, European art that he's referencing you you mentioned um, his interest in Goya and there's a a Goya work called I think it's called Los Caprichos that ha mm -hmm. has in it in the Goya work there's this sort of very menacing kind of gargoyle bat-like creature and it's mm -hmm. it's kind of a terrifying image and in the Thompson painting that references it, the, you know, that figure is there in a way, but the colors of it are, are you know, kind of joyful. And so you're looking at this thing and thinking, I don't, you know, is this frightening still? Am I, or, or is it fun? I don't, I'm not really sure. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that he so, um, uh, latches on to Los Caprichos, which is, of course, uh, you know, those, that is a portfolio of prints. That is a work that is inherently um, just tonal, right. uh, black and white. And so um, it seems almost like the the best possible. Yes, Goya, um, like him, is sort of someone who exists uh, outside <laughs> um, of, of artistic practices in many ways, his vision, his imagination, he, he is, um, he sort of exists unto himself. Um, and then this work that, that offers him kind of infinite possibilities is also, um, is also one that, that does not um, present in color. So it becomes, yeah, I think the ways that there are people who, who look at, um, who look at the work and see, you know, the color operative independent of, um, what it remains sort of intact of any kind of, um, you know, narrative element from the Goya. Goya's, uh, prints were of course, um, these sort of moralizing vignettes. And so, um, but, you can you can look at the Thompson and you can just see the kind of forces of color now um, and the ways that he uses that to, again, kind of bring forward, I think, certain things um, and really utterly transform some of the relationships, um, you know, spatial uh, the the sort of interpersonal relationships and the assumptions that we might make or attach to them become completely different um, in his in his hands. So one of the things that the that the show and the book um, do really well are are to you know focus on on these ways that Thompson is changing the the game of you know the. The European art that he that he's so influenced by and is referencing in his work. Um, how, how can you talk a little bit about how the referentiality of his paintings were discussed and interpreted at at the time? You know, when he was alive and showing work. Sure, <clears throat> I think um, it's it's of course something of a a trap 
to even try this um, in that moment. Um, and so many of the critics who are responding to the work, you know, do so by way of analogy to these, um, you know, these uh, sources. And there's so there there is a kind of lot a lot of source um, hunting that goes on, and I think um, inevitably in in broaching some of those comparisons, of course, um, there's even a sense that uh, the work can't hold up alongside, um, and and so I think the you know the intentions become kind of misunderstood, uh, and so you know I'm I'm struck by his being faulted so often in some of the criticism for the, the irresolution um, of the work. And so the sense that it, it doesn't necessarily cohere or you, you don't, there's a, there's a lack of understanding um, on the part of the viewer. And actually it's some of the same things that, um, you know, I think people may say now, arguably it's what makes it, fascinating and I think art the art historian um, will will reflect on this and think about moments uh, like when Manet painted Le Déjeuner sur l'herbe um, in 1863 its opacity confounded critics it, you know was the most vexing thing about um, this um, this painting and similarly you know Paul Gauguin talked about, inscrutability as essential as essential to his art and you know this sort of genealogy of artists and um, artists like the symbolists who believed that art like music need not be understood um, so he's being criticized but at the same time um, following as closely in many ways as possible um, in the footsteps of some of the sort of great post-impressionist um, painters. And so, you know, I think the there's a perception of kind of restlessness on his part. Um, there is a, a, you know, in addition to this sort of uh, perception of the opacity of the work, there are sometimes moments when critics spin that, I think, in a productive way. And so there's one review um, of the work which talks about the recurring figure of the silhouette uh, in a hat. And, you know, one critic, I think, really lays out the, the capaciousness of this symbol for Thompson and says that, you know, it, it's a spectator. It reminds them of Buster Keaton or a huntsman or a sheriff or a jazz musician. And so I feel like in that, um, in that response, you see the many um, possibilities compressed in this, this very, um, this very simple um, symbol and they range I think from the the lighthearted in terms of Buster Keaton um you know to a kind of much uh you know a figure with with who introduces much more foreboding like a sheriff or a huntsman and so I think that that kind of you know that um spectrum uh 
is what some people respond very favorably to and exactly what um, some critics uh, couldn't, um, just couldn't sort of deal with. Did Thompson himself leave any clues in his his writings, diaries, interviews about how he would explain his own work or how he, you know, or, or responses to what other people were, were saying about his work? Um, he, so there's, there's not terribly much in terms of, uh, the artist's voice kind of unmediated that, that really survives. Uh, so there are, there are a handful of artist statements written in connection with a few of his early exhibitions. Um, we have one of those in the exhibition and, you know, it's, and then there's one extended interview that he did with a master's student in art history who was uh, working with Meyer Shapiro, uh, the art historian at Columbia, on her thesis. And so Bob Thompson was one of the artists she interviewed, and she recorded this extended studio visit. So there is a very uh, edited transcript with some of his kind of stream of consciousness thought about his painting. And, um, you know, I think he stresses, and, and we try to bring this out in the show, he stresses the fact that the work is deeply personal, but not, um, you know, and I think for reasons that a number of the texts in the book be articulate, you know, it is deeply personal, but not necessarily self-referential. And so, you know, there's a lot of him in there, he will say again and again, um, even as he stresses the value of um, privacy. And that was a term that I kept encountering in a few of the statements he made about his work um, and then it's one that also gets picked up in some of the criticism too. And so, you know, he'll talk about painting his moment and, and you know, in, in doing that is very, you know, is very much taking up the mantle of um, artists like, you know, I think about the artist theorists of um, the decades prior, but, you know, Bearden is someone who similarly sort of worked through his uh, infatuation with European painting, but came out with a, an understanding that there, there's a way for the artist to paint present day life, um, you know, even, even as you are kind of working through historical painting, you know, this must be on balance with um, your your sort of commitment to painting present day life, whatever form that takes. And so I think um, that's something you see a little bit in Thompson's uh, expressions of um, intent. He also talks a lot about freedom um, and his, you know, the freedom that he can find within figurative painting. Um, and he almost, positions that as 
kind of antithetical to the um, the hold that ideas have for you know for some of the pure abstract uh, painters of the moment that there's this sort of um, way that the idea becomes too much the um, the sort of driving force of uh, that expression and in contrast he feels this tremendous freedom <laughs> um, within the spaces that he has carved out for himself. I, I want to ask you too um, before we before we go ab- about the the book itself, the exhibition catalog. Um, I, I'm not sure I've ever seen more contributors to a book about an artist. It's a you know it's it's a beautiful book. It's it's compact. It's not a million pages long, and there's an incredible variety of perspective. There's you know, art history, there's poetry, there's a transcription of a conversation with the contemporary artist Henry Taylor. There's, um, and I wonder if you can tell me how, how that approach, um, how it developed. Was that your thought from the very beginning? Like, you know, to, to really get a handle on Bob Thompson, it's important to figure out how to put together this very 360 degree view of him? Or was that, you know, as you were working on it, was there just, you know, more and more to to say about it. I know, incredibly, I I feel like the book uh, could easily have had another dozen. <laughs> <laughs> I um I am relieved that I <laughs> did not go um, go that route. It was especially during uh, the the pandemic and and in light of the constraints that every author faced in terms of research and resources. Um, I'm exceedingly grateful to everyone for, um, for, for sort of being able to realize these contributions. And, you know, I think that the opportunity here in reintroducing or introducing him to new audiences was to really seed a new interpretive community. And so I wanted the, I wanted it to feel like Thompson belongs to everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so, you know, I think the idea was to have academics, um, scholars from several disciplines represented to have uh, some, in this case, textual matter that pointed to the way that he functioned as a muse for other creative individuals. So the two poems that are in the book, which I discovered in various archives in, you know, as typescripts, um, the poem by A.B. Spellman was written on the occasion of Thompson's death. And um, the poem by Leroy Jones, as he then identified himself was one from a suite of five poems that he wrote and gave um, to the artist. So it was important to understand the kind of reciprocal influences, I think, that he um, that he enjoyed with musicians and writers. And then I wanted to have um, some living artists also contribute. I think um, there are Reflections by Rashid Johnson and uh, Henry Taylor. In the case of the Henry Taylor text, those are 
excerpts from a long <laughs> phone call. Um, and you really sense the, the extent to which this artist functions as a reservoir for, um, you know, for so many seekers, for so many practitioners who are either um, discovering a shared problem or maybe um, continuing to find solutions in the work. And so I'm so moved by the way that Henry, in his, um, in his remarks, talks about Thompson always having been there. I think it's, it's um, an acknowledgement of the way that his short career, his, his body of work is just so capacious that you really can find so much within it. And so it's sort of this, just this, there's something encyclopedic even to, um, to these, you know, eight years of painting um, by Bob Thompson. Another aspect of the catalog, um, as far as I was concerned, was to think about new possibilities for um, for and new questions to ask of of artwork and of the museum. And so, I was very excited to be able to include a contribution from staff at the Brooklyn Museum of Art. They developed in partnership with Project Reset, which is a diversion program that was created by the Center for Court Innovation, a really um, extraordinary curriculum, um, uh, a space in which, um, you know, those charged with low-level offenses may instead enroll in um, in an art program and through conversation and, you know, facilitated conversation, really process some of their own experiences therapeutically. In this case, one of the paintings that is the anchor for this program is the painting, The Judgment, which is in the Brooklyn Museum of Art collection. And so I think it was so meaningful to have them reflect on what it means to reimagine the possibilities for a museum and to do so collectively. And so I think that felt, um, you know, symbolically important and also apt because it is well suited to, I think, an artist who himself was kind of reimagining possibilities for, um, for art. And so that was very important to also, um, have within the catalog. And I think aesthetically, the the catalog um, really also just reflects the, um, the prolific nature um, of his career, the kind of um, texture, um, the, the various um, the many individuals, the the many spaces of artistic production, the even the end papers of the catalog include an unfinished canvas that he had abandoned in his studio in 1961 when he and Carol left for Europe, and this was among the canvases that he kind of gifted to other artists. So, um, so the artist Rosalind Drexler in this case has taken that canvas and um, restretched it. And on the, the other side is her finished painting. Um, so this kind of spectral uh, presence of Thompson's work felt like it was just the perfect way to open and close uh, the, the catalog.
I completely agree. It really, it's an extraordinary accomplishment as an object and as a project. It is, you know, it's an appreciation of Thompson. It's an education in Thompson. And, uh, and thank you. Thank you for it. Thank you again for taking the time to talk to us about it today. Oh, thank you so much, Jessica, and to, um, to everyone at Yale for, um, for such a beautiful book. It's, uh, it's exciting that museum goers all across the country will have the opportunity to see the exhibition as it travels from Maine to Chicago to Atlanta to Los Angeles. And of course, the book, Bob Thompson, This House is Mine, is available now to everyone wherever books are sold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Please visit us online at YaleBooks.com for more episodes of the podcast, as well as information about all of our books.